from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, welcome back, Justin. How are you, Lindsay? Um, I'm pretty good. I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie that was, uh, I remember seeing it so many times in the mid-90s. Yeah, our movie today is the 90s indie classic, I Shot Andy Warhol. Directed by Mary Heron and starring Lily Taylor. There's a lot to talk about in this. Uh, one, it is based on a true story. Um, so that right there has a has a lot to be discussed. And I saw this in the '90s, and it it'd been a while since I've revisited it. But I remember thinking this was like a really great movie that uh, was like a period piece, but didn't feel like a period piece. And uh, I don't know that I knew that Andy War Warhol got shot prior to the '90s. Yeah, I I didn't know. And admittedly, I I rented this movie because of the cover. And I knew who Lily Taylor was. And the cover is an imitation of a Warhol painting, of the Warhol Elvis painting. So that drew me in. And immediately watching that was like, whoa, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse of a real world here. And yeah, I had no idea that Andy Warhol was actually shot then. Yeah. So if you've never seen this movie or heard of it and you didn't know about Warhol, this might uh, come as a surprise that this is a... you know, based on a true story and most mm-hmm. of the events that take place in the movie uh, did happen. And this movie came at a time when independent film was reaching like a spirited boom in the 90s. Yeah, mid, yeah early mid-90s was like mm-hmm. a huge time for a lot of movies that were independently made, independently financed, played the Sundance Film Festival, got bought by a studio, and then usually a lot of the major studios would have this sort of like little branch <laughs> like company where they would like release their indie films in like art house theaters throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. And this was one of them, you know, this was probably made for I think like a couple million dollars and then uh, released in uh, select cities across the United States. Yeah. I wish I'd seen it when it was released, but I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to get my hands on a copy as a probably 15 year old, I'd say. Well, a lot to talk about with this movie. We'll certainly talk about, the style of this film and how it doesn't really uh, fall into a lot of period piece tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of like stands on its own. And though it uh, looks like, you know, a movie that took place in a different time period doesn't look like it's trying to be over the head with that idea that it was took place in the 60s. Yeah. And with that, too, how uh, the director and co-writer Mary Heron took from reality and also uh, worked in some fiction in order to uh, make a narrative work. So there's a there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot of backstory. And we'll even go into a little bit of the writings by Valerie Solanas, who yeah. was the woman that uh, attempted to kill Andy Warhol. And she's a really interesting character and, and a radical part of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s and... One that really doesn't get talked about too much nowadays, but was uh, certainly a name well known to the feminist community, whether or not you agreed with her. 
And we'll definitely talk a little bit about Warhol or touch on Warhol a little bit. We'd probably yeah. have to make this a two-part <laughs> episode if we were going to get yeah. in-depth on Warhol. Yeah. And of course, we'll hit on the cast, uh, some of our favorite standouts, also uh, some of the inspiration for the movie. So a lot to talk about with this film. Of course, we'll also get into our picks of the week after the discussion. With my movie, uh, it's connected to I Shot Andy Warhol via actor... Um, Martha Plimpton. Martha Plimpton, yeah, with uh, Running on Empty, um, also starring a, a podcast favorite here, River Phoenix. <laughs> and so coincidental, too, we didn't even plan this. My pick of the week also stars River Phoenix, and I shot Andy Warhol star Lily Taylor, and that is from 1991, and it's called Dogfight. Gosh, I got to rewatch that movie. I haven't seen it probably since it played on television in the maybe like early 90s. I think it's still on a streaming service right now with commercials, but it's still free on either Crackle or Vudu or something right now. I'll take a look. Um, As always, uh, we'll give you our Murray moments. But before we get into our discussion, uh, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief lowdown on what this movie's about? Of course I can. So like Justin said, this is kind of a biopic, kind of not, um, but about two very real people, primarily the ambitious, radical, queer, feminist writer Valerie Solanas and the legendary artist Andy Warhol. The film is a dramatization about the life events which lead up to Solanas, um, as the film's title indicates, trying to murder Andy Warhol. The film also sprinkles in other real-life people, her semi-destitute fringe culture friends, one of which was the soon-to-be Warhol starlet Candy Darling. Solanus writes a play called Up Your Ass and gives it to Warhol to produce, all while spreading the word of her radical ideas about the eradication of men in her scum manifesto, which we'll go into later. She works her way into the infamous Warhol factory for quite a little while, but no one really takes her seriously. And after Warhol loses her play, Solanus begins to crumble and kind of believing that everyone is against her and eventually attempts to murder him. Thanks. No, that's that pretty much rounds it out. That was a pretty good description. Trying to sum it all up. Yeah, a lot of events happen in the movie, but yeah, that really hits it. So we'll go to our first clip from I Shot Andy Warhol, and we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Presentation of the rationale and program of action of scum. Society for cutting up men. The male tries to convince himself and women that the female function is to bear and raise children, soothe, relax, and boost the male ego. When in actual fact, the female function is to groove, relate, love, be herself, discover, explore, invent, solve problems, crack jokes, make music, all with love. In other words, create a magic world. Eaten up with guilt, fear, shame, and other insecurities, and obtaining, if he's lucky, a barely perceptible physical feeling, the male is nonetheless obsessed with screwing. He'll swim a river of snot. Wait nostril deep through a mile of vomit if there's a friendly pussy awaiting him. He'll screw a woman he despises, and he snaggle tooth tag. So what we'd like to do for this first uh, part of this discussion is kind of give you a little bit of background on both Valerie Solanas and Andy Warhol, but at the same time working in tidbits on the film so that we can keep it connected to the I Shot Andy Warhol movie. So we'll start with Valerie Solanas. Valerie Solanas was uh, diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. Much later in life, after Much. after she uh, shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, and uh, she shot Andy Warhol in 1968. She 
um, got to New York in about the mid sixties. Um, she had kind of traveled around. Uh, she was very well educated, very smart. Had an undergrad degree. Put herself through school. Yeah, it was like worked worked as an editor for a while. Um, also worked as a sex worker to put herself through school. Yeah, so she landed in New York in about the mid sixties, and around this time is when Andy Warhol was. Uh, you know, the factory was created and Andy Warhol was kind of like the biggest boom of his career was taking place in like the mid sixties. And he was at this point a really well-known artist when they crossed, when they crossed paths. The I shot Andy Warhol movie sort of picks up on Valerie Solanus already living in New York. Uh, they give a little bit of background history, but for the most part, the majority of the film takes place during 1967, 1968. Yeah. It seems like before, all of this happened like in college she had started coming up with this idea that men were inherently scientifically less than female they were incomplete females and so over the years she developed this idea comes to new york and has finishes writing the scum what would be the scum manifesto scum standing for the society for cutting up men and her idea was to form a, a sect of feminism and hadn't really found, you know, people, enough people to start a giant movement behind her, but was out on the streets, like, peddling her manifesto and trying to uh, get the word out there. 20, 25 cents for a woman, 50 cents for a man. Whatever whatever the price was, it was always yeah. higher for a man. <laughs> and uh, very political, very radical, and very driven. The movie itself, I think, paints Valerie in somewhat of a sympathetic light. I mean, she, she is someone that tried to murder Andy Warhol, but at the same time, I think the movie shows the complexities of her character. And at the same time, too, you know, I think if you know, if you've never seen the movie and you, you know, like a little bit about it, you instinctually might think like, oh, this is a movie just it's all about a hatred of men. And, and it's really not. Um, I mean, the majority of yeah, the, no. the relationships that she has throughout the movie are with men. And um, I, I think that's what some people would say make her somewhat of a contradiction, too. I mean, in, in numerous ways. Uh, I don't think that we expressly ever get that said in the movie, but by her actions and things that she does. And I think towards the end of the movie, we do see her unravel and we start to realize the little things in the beginning, which made her so intense, were actually part of, you know, a problem that she that she had look at this movie under the guise of like this is like 1967 1968 so there's a lot of language that Valerie Solanus uses in her scum manifesto and in the movie that definitely would be deemed uh inappropriate or offensive at this point I think to to both male and female <laughs> uh any gender all, all genders yeah, all genders and uh this entire episode we're viewing this movie in in this subject matter under the lens of the times of it being 1967 1968 and i think that this movie being made when it when it was it did the best job of communicating that too i don't think that this movie is taking a stance necessarily on gender politics of of leaning any which way if anything yes there is a little bit of sympathy for valerie solanas but to me and knowing that this comes from mary heron who's familiar with uh, or she has a background in journalism and documentary that she was trying to be as true and straightforward to the story as it as it happened. And as for Andy Warhol, Justin, you and I talked about does the newer generation know who Andy Warhol is? Because I think you know you and I, it's kind of like a no brainer, and we can think of at least 
three pieces off the top of our head that were super popular uh, or that have been super popular over our lifetime. Um, but for those of you who don't know, he was one of the first artists to do kind of mixed media, that being like photography, um, sculpture, silk screening, um, kind of everything thrown in, painting everything thrown into one and then uh, went on, and we see this a little bit in the movie, went on to start making films. And he started in the 50s in Pennsylvania and kind of got known for having controversial artwork and then moved to New York, basically started the factory, this compound, and just started creating, like, mirroring society through art. And you can call it superficial. You can call it just a comment on commercialism and society, advertising, celebrity, all of that was... um, it it just kind of catapulted him. People became fascinated with what he was doing. And also too, like um, it's interesting to me because it, you know, Warhol was very much ahead of his time. You know, like when we think about, uh, you know, people putting out content now, it's all about content, content, content. If you're yeah. an Instagram uh, sensation or if you're, you know, you're a YouTube star, it's all about putting out content and, and being prolific. And that's the one thing that Warhol was. He was very prolific. I mean, they called it the factory because it was basically like they were, they were working 24 yeah, seven, cranking churning out, out churning out pieces and the content was just coming. It was just like endless. And so I think that's really, you know, Warhol was one, you know, one of the first people understood that like people are going to lose interest in something very quickly. You have to hit them with the next thing immediately. In, in case this also needs to be said too, Warhol was who coined the term 15 minutes of fame that in in our lifetime everyone will have their 15 minutes of fame so everyone has to have heard of that phrase right I don't know I don't know what what the kids nowadays know and what they don't but that's where that came from and you can imagine like Warhol was like at this point wealthy he had a setup he was having lavish parties I mean he you know it was the thing to do if you were in New York City in the 60s like going to the factory was the thing to do being a part of that subculture and it's interesting to me because Valerie Solanas was very much the antithesis of that like she was not part of like you know this glamorous uh drug culture but in a lot of ways she had her own style and she Mm -hmm. was very much I think you know ideally what you would consider a true artist I mean in, in in an artist in that way of like being so driven where you like really will live in destitute and you don't care about anything else. You know, it's like this sort of like need to create, uh, whether it would like ruin relationships or whatever. And I think anybody out there who has like, you know, that itch to create or that creative drive can probably relate to this character a little bit. I certainly know that I can. <laughs> there are plenty of scenes where we see her madly typing at her typewriter and even one in the very beginning where she's sitting on top of a roof with her like sleeping bag and papers that are weighted down by rocks. Like she really was doing that. She was hauling around her typewriter and was this kind of like mad artist. And in some ways, yeah, it does gel with with this idea, this counterculture idea of what Warhol was doing. But Warhol's faction was not politically driven. There were no politics. I mean, really, like yeah, was, nothing Nothing as radical as where Valerie was coming from. Like, I, I want to get my hands on a copy of Up Your Ass really badly. But I know that she took a lot of these experiences 
um, from turning tricks and put it into her writing like I know from what I can surmise up your ass was a lot of had a lot to do with her interactions with men obviously she's going to form opinions on people on men on the relationships that those men are involved with if if they're married if they're secretly gay if they're whatever the situation of course she's going to form an idea and have a whole philosophy behind it so in some ways she was using these interactions for research as well as getting paid for it. I think a lot, you know, a lot of her interactions with men in the film I Shot Andy Warhol, um, you would consider to be negative experiences. Uh, Just about every man in her life definitely was like a negative experience. And, you know, you could say like, okay, well, that's the reason for her hating men so much. But, you know, there's so much that she speaks of about the male species that is you know, extremely relevant now, you know I mean? And yeah, when you're reading sections of we'll get her there. scum manifesto, we'll get there, but it's, it's eerily relevant. And so I think, uh, yeah. you know, we can say both Andy Warhol and Valerie Solanas were both ahead of their time. One cool thing that Andy Warhol was doing was, I know we said bringing in people that wouldn't necessarily be stars and making them stars, one of those was Candy Darling, and we do get to see Candy Darling in in this film, and and she, along with a lot of other trans actresses, were in quite a few Warhol films, and and he was ahead of his time, and and in a lot of ways, and pretty progressive. I don't think he was necessarily thinking that he was progressive at all. He just liked these people, and felt that they were fitting the image that he was trying to project for these ideas. I totally couldn't agree more. Well, before we go to another clip from I Shot Andy Warhol, uh, let's talk, let's go back to Valerie's writing, um, just briefly talk a little bit about her scum manifesto, Yeah. Um, because we'll get more into Valerie in discussion too. So the scum manifesto uh, on the surface is an incredibly engaging, interesting read, and man, I've I've never read something that uh, radical, I think, um, well, to date. Basically boiled down, Valerie is saying men have ruined the world and women need to fix it. This idea of kind of banding together, inspiring women to organize and overthrow the male gender and also eliminate the male gender. There's, um, gosh, it's kind of boiled down into different sections, I would say, talking about the male as an incomplete female. And then instead of, you know, something like that we we know of as penis envy, that it's really envying being a woman and that a man spends his entire life trying to become like a woman, therefore trying to keep women down, Um, that they're uh, emotionally limited, egocentric, incapable of passion, all of these things that are just putting men down and is very what you know, a lot of people would call man hate speech. But she has a lot to say about, she kind of puts women down a lot in, yeah, that, in a lot of the manifesto as well. Yeah, it it is kind of interesting in that way because it is pitting liberated women against how she views certain women as being, you know, mind controlled or repressed, I think we could say. So, so there is this kind of, mm, there are a lot of things that don't go together in in the manifesto. That's not to say that there aren't parts of it that 
don't ring very true and don't feel like they still are sadly relevant yeah, in, in yeah. 2020. Like a, like a, yeah, like we were saying earlier, yeah. like it's, it's very relevant for how a lot of the behavior of male society is. Yeah, and it does go into like an extremist idea of this, uh, like basically anarchy and saying that we should reject the money system and turn to complete automation, eradicating... Uh, the male species by if we take out money then government disappears and then the oppression of women disappears therefore we have no need for men it's really impressive yeah, i would the- say that and just like the way that she has thought through all of these ideas and it's a global vision i would say and you know there are some things that i'm like well yeah she's um she's completely right on about that and then there are some things that would make you completely squirm worthy reading them and at the time when this came out was published in 1967 there were some feminists that were completely behind it and supported her and then there were others that were saying this is way too radical this is not what we're about and this is not what's going to get us ahead in the world and i I think in in that way, some would say you can't be that extreme in order to like make a big social change like this. But, you know, Valerie had a lot of things to say that were valid. I will say that. Yeah, it's an interesting read. It's like the first half of it re- rings very true. Um, and then maybe like the last four or five pages <laughs> sort of like read like a script out of like an early Mad Max movie. Yeah, it's like not science fiction. It's just kind of like like whoa really and that's where it turns into this global vision idea totally well let's stop there let's go into another clip from i shot andy warhol and then we'll come back and we'll get into a discussion on uh the cast uh director mary heron and some of the fact versus fiction that had to do with the film gee everyone's having such a good time would you say something for me what yeah, I'm, you know, I have uh, like an hour's worth on, uh, on tape here, you know, and I was just wondering, maybe you could just do a, you know, like a monologue for me. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I can't just monologue like that. I mean, I, I need a stimulating person like yourself, you know, to talk to. And I can't, you know, I can just do it on my own. <laughs> oh, come on, family. You say something dirty. That's so easy for you. Let's talk about sex. Sex is really nothing, isn't it? I could read you something from my latest masterpiece, Scum Manifesto. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Sex is the refuge of the mindless. Sex is not part of a relationship. On the contrary, it is a solitary experience, non-creative, a gross waste of time. So I Shed Andy Warhol was directed by Mary Heron, who most people will know her best by her film American Psycho but she like we said prior to this she had done quite a bit of work um just nothing that was you know considered like a big feature release yeah and so she had really come from like a documentary research background and brought a lot of that knowledge to working in the story the script for I Shot Andy Warhol specifically um in interviews saying you know, certain elements you want to get as true as you can. And then other elements for story's sake, you know, when you're making a feature film, this isn't a documentary, you know, you condense things, you're condensing time, you're condensing events. 
that some that can piss a lot of people off. Like if you're a history buff, you're probably not the best person to watch any feature film on a historical figure. You're probably better off watching a documentary. Mary Herring chose a character. Uh, the focus is on a character that not a lot of people were familiar with, Valerie Solanas. A lot of people were familiar with Andy Warhol, and, and Mary Heron said originally Warhol wasn't going to be a huge part of the original film, but she said there's like this allure of like recreating the factory and recreating the legacy of, of Warhol and like the parties that they had at the factory. And so um, as she was broadening the script and the story of working Valerie's story into a movie uh, Warhol became more connected as more of a almost like a co-star in the movie and I think originally when this idea came up she decided to explore the story of Valerie Solanas after coming across the scum manifesto she had previously because she was a music journalist had previously I mean hung out with you know, Velvet Underground, that was like, she she loved that. I mean, way back in the Sex Pistols and, and before and had been at a couple parties with Andy Warhol. So she was familiar with the scene. But when she came across the Scum Manifesto was like, what? Okay, I need to, this need, this is a story that needs to come out. And had originally thought about making this movie as a documentary, but there is so little... Uh, there's just not that much out there about Valerie Solanas or people that either are left to talk about her. Um, but she did, she was able to track down enough people to create this story. And, you know, it's, um, something that she really played on her research capabilities of tracking down people that, uh, were her, editor the you know the year that she or the years that she was at college her her college newspaper and tracking down people that she went to school with and then people that were willing to talk about her so she went from this idea of making it a documentary which I think you can kind of see in the movie a little bit but um she really does give credit to uh I think it's a Daniel Minahan Minahan who was another co-writer for breaking her free of or, or, or making her not adhere so strongly to uh, you know exact facts and it's not to say that things that happen in this aren't factual pretty much everything that happens in it is factual it just might not have been you know um, for instance Candy Darling is not the person in reality who brought Valerie Solanas to Andy Warhol's factory in the first place. It was a photographer. But for the purposes of movie making, when you're creating a narrative and story and you don't want to have a trillion characters, it just gets confusing. Yeah. So condense it down. Make it one person. Make it this person that, that Valerie Solanas was friends with, and that being Candy Darling. One thing I really love about the style of the movie and what Mary Heron did uh to portray a movie that takes place in the 60s because the 60s especially like this era of the 60s like 67 68 has been displayed in Hollywood and films so many times and there's you know actually like you know you can find tropes and like oh there's a movie about the 60s we've got to hit particular music we've got to hit a news clip of JFK yeah. we've you know and 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 for Valerie being such a radical character and so political, really none of that is on display here. 
in. I think it makes the movie actually look to me more legitimately real. Like I feel like this movie takes place in the 60s. I don't feel like it's like desperately trying to show you like (laughs) this is the 60s. Let's cut to like here's what they use in the 60s. Like there's none of that really on display here. It's all about the characters and the backdrop is like, you know, it's adhering to the times. I also find interesting too, like in in an interview with Mary Heron, she said that uh, Valerie didn't really fit in with the the art scene of Mm -hmm. the factory because everybody there was all about... I mean, it was very insulated and, you know, you can kind of say narcissistic if you want, you know, it was very much about what they were creating and that vibe was very much like kind of like a bubble. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. they didn't, they weren't worried about the politics that were going on and it was a very uh, turbulent time in American history. But other than toward the end of the film where she uh, is kind of like sleeping with a quote unquote revolutionary, that's the only real moment in the film that like really shows any politics male, male revolutionary male revolutionary should, should but it's the only it's the only point in the film it's the only point in the film that really shows any sort of like politics of the time and when i watch the movie now after you know this came out in 1996 you know after 20 years of like even more movies that have like take taken sh- the 60s taken, taken the yeah. 60s you know on damn does this movie still feel <laughs> super refreshing i mean they just did it yeah. so well and i think it was like such a smart way to do a historical piece and is and especially on such a low budget i think this movie was like under two million dollars yes it was yeah she was very much thinking about the story versus the aesthetic of the time because while that is present it's not the because that can happen in movies where the setting and the time period can become a character itself and that doesn't happen in this the the story is very much what you're watching and that does create this like gritty New York feel and it's not a slick movie but it's also not I don't know I I feel like I'm watching a story being told and yes a movie but it doesn't feel overly slick and it feels just like yeah it feels like I'm watching a New York story man yeah yeah and I and you know not to keep (laughs) harping on this but just like there's so many movies you know take they 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 take place in the eighties now. This has been a thing for like five years now where it's like <laughs> yeah. the, the tasteless thing to do would be like, we got to show someone playing with a Rubik's cube. It's like, of course no one was playing with a Rubik's cube throughout the entire eighties, but it's like, Oh, it's an eighties. <laughs> you got to show that. And like this movie again, I feel like just does a fantastic job of like, you're doing a period piece, but you're not getting caught up on spending all your time making us believe that we're in the sixties. It's all about the characters and that's the most important thing here. And that's what Mary Heron puts on display. Yeah. She very much takes this idea uh, of something that really happened and makes it really a based on a true story versus like biopic story of the time. And uh, you know, yeah. Sprinkling in, historic events that actually happened yeah it doesn't happen that often there's one moment but it's pertaining to what's happening to valerie and valerie happens to see on a tv that like there's a a feminist movement that's happening and she's like i should be there i should be there it's about valerie and her experience not we're not seeing the image on tv of the historical image on tv of what's happening it's about valerie and i like let's move into uh Lily Taylor's portrayal of Valerie Solanas because dude this is to me <laughs> this is pretty unreal and it's yeah. crazy to me that that 
Lily Taylor didn't get nominated for an Oscar for I, this performance. I think Mary Heron had her in mind before, like, all of this came to, like, fruition and she had something set in stone. And Lily Taylor, you might be most familiar with her now as, like, being, like, the main mom from the first Conjuring film. Oh, um, yeah. Which, you know, the reason why that movie plays so well is because the director was smart to get an actor like Lily Taylor, but you know, she had already had like 25, 30 yeah. years of like putting in like amazing performances. It's, it's hard for me to ever say like, you might know Lily Taylor from such movies as, right. Um, because I love her and so much that she does. Um, like I just went through all of six feet under for the first time and yeah, she is amazing in six feet under too. But yeah, the conjuring is probably what you're going to know her from. Or maybe if you remember the haunting, that movie, I think that was the late 90s. Maybe, yeah. yeah. But this uh, this performance, it's like an embodiment of a character. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't look like somebody trying to emulate something. It comes off as so natural. There's a lot of nuance where she's reacting to things. And that's always a huge thing to me, like in movies where someone's reacting and they're thinking and they they're 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 taking a beat it's not all about shouting like reacting like mm-hmm. gut react or like knee-jerk reaction in films where someone's like shouting or getting mad you know that's something that i don't think is easy to do as as an actor but i think that the quiet moments and in, in the thinking and projecting what that character is going through because this is a character when you watch her performance she comes off as such a fascinating character, but on the on the same token, someone that you can see would be very unlikable and not a great person to be around or spend time with. But you can't help but want to s- just watch her and like watch her go through these different adventures because you know she is so intriguing. I don't know what this says about me necessarily, but Lily Taylor's portrayal really does make me want to talk to Valerie Solanas. I I think that she could be extremely abrasive and you would probably kick her out of your apartment numerous times. But there, there is something that is incredibly fascinating about her and man, down to really specific things like her eye flutter movements And I don't know if there are specific, like whether it's eye flutter movements or just little kind of, not even ticks, because they're not ticks that she has, um, but little things that play into maybe this idea that Valerie does have some type of like mental disorder that's going on and that's been undiagnosed. Um, But there are so many things about her that she nails so well, like the little bit footage out there that, that does exist of, of Valerie. It's um kind of really eerie. You know, there's many sequences where, you know, she, she was a sex worker through most of her time in New York. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that is on display in the movie. And uh, I think that there is something about her representation of like she's like numb to this like yeah she's she but she's very real like you know when she wants to talk to somebody there's no like small talk there's no like bs and there's all these like there's this sort of sequences where she's doing all these different um uh 
uh, sex jobs with men and the guys clearly like, you know, this is like their dream. You know, this is like their dark fantasy come true. But to her, she's like smoking a cigarette and this is just like nothing to her. She's like, whatever. But in the, and I think that those, those scenes, I think like would not be effective without her kind of showing that side of like Valerie of like, this is the work I do, but I, I'm not getting pleasure out of it. You know, but the, you know, and how, mm-hmm. kind of how, like, how different is it's like how these men aren't using her, she's like using them. There are a few moments in this movie that make me think back to, I love this book, Ruby Fruit Jungle. Um, it, probably if, if you saw this movie when it came out, you're probably familiar with, with Ruby Fruit Jungle and the, the way in which some of the, uh, like sex scenes with men are treated kind of like that. Like this is this person's ultimate fantasy and you just could not care less, but you know what? You're getting paid for it. So it is what it is. She might be extremely radical in her ideas of feminism, but even to me, her in her writing in the scum manifesto, and I'm sure in up your ass, even the little bit that we do get from the movie, the incredible, sarcasm like intelligent sarcasm that comes through in the writing along with being very cutting and very extreme lily taylor nails it numerous times in her uh especially in her interactions with men um you know saying when when the dudes are saying like what they're interested in she really comes at it to where they don't even know that she's being sarcastic the way that she's uh coming at them. yeah she has this very it's like a very sublime and like sardonic sense of humor i think in the way she like approaches people and like can is as a person that can like read somebody really quickly so and quickly. see what they're about she's not to not to you know put down the actual valerie solanus but lily taylor's portrayal of her she does it so well that i i think it's um almost like when you think of valerie solanus you think of lily taylor it's it's done that well yeah um, well, let's uh, let's move on real quickly to just a few of the other cast members. You know, this isn't necessarily an ensemble piece. I mean, it's very much a movie about the Valerie Solanas character, but um, we do have uh, Jared Harris, who plays Andy Warhol. Yes, and he. There have been many portrayals of Andy Warhol over the years, and from from what I've seen, I mean, there's a fair amount of footage of of the actual Warhol, like around from what i can tell like i really like this performance and i and i think that a lot of people say different things about andy warhol yes he was an influencer sometimes he uh, i think the overarching idea is that he was very quiet and yes that was true um but that he also had like kind of like he could kind of be shitty to people sometimes and I think that maybe that is downplayed a little bit in this movie, aside from the aspect of when people are excommunicated from the inner circle, the bubble. Aside from the overall idea of how Andy Warhol was going to be portrayed in this movie, Jared Harris nails it. Um, I think aesthetically, his voice... Um, yeah, I, I think it's such a solid performance. Yeah, and this was pretty early in his career. I mean, and most people know Jared Harris as the Lane character in Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, you know, he was on many, many seasons. And you, you'd recognize him immediately from just dozens and dozens of movies. But Would you recognize him, though, in, in this role? I Well, that's the thing. I don't know, because yeah. I saw his name flash up, because it had been a while since I'd watched this. 
And I was like, but then immediately I was like, oh yeah, he's Andy Warhol. But yeah, his performances and I, and I've seen, you know, again, like you said, there's many movies where there's been tiny scenes where they show Warhol, mm-hmm. uh, but he's got a pretty big role yeah. in this. And, yeah. and I think, uh, kind of does like have that essence, you know, that sort of like standoffish and shyness that, that Warhol was known for. That's got to be so daunting too, when you're such an iconic figure to be the guy that's portraying that person when so many people knew him and so many people that knew him were also on a lot of drugs. And I'm sure everyone remembers him in, in different ways, but, um, yeah, certainly got the, um, quiet and, uh, standoffish. Yeah. I watched one interview in doing research, which was, uh, this was like actual footage of Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick on the Merv Griffin show. And pretty much the entire thing, either Andy Warhol responded in very quiet yeses, just yes, or his answers he whispered to Edie Sedgwick and then she responded to Merv Griffin. So he was a weirdo. He was shy. You know, not that that makes you a weirdo, but, you know, he was different. And and I think that that version of Andy Warhol really comes through in Jared Harris's performance. So the other two main roles, um, we've got Martha Plimpton, who plays Stevie, who is uh, Valerie Solanus's really only female friend that is on display in the entire film. And you can kind of tell and this and I think this is where. Uh, most that's on display is that idea that Valerie wouldn't be the best person that you'd want to be real close friends with because she can be very erratic, uh, zero boundaries and kind of sponges off of, of the Martha Plimpton character a little bit, but is also like very real and seems like, you know, uh, someone that like, again, it would be refreshing to hear someone like be very honest and not BS you. And so, um, and, and though Martha Plimpton doesn't have a large role in this, I do think that uh, she always brings this sort of sense of like, uh, real, um, life, like this real, like energy to all her roles and, you know, really, I think makes a nice splash here, even when just yeah. a few role, just the few scenes that she's in. Just reflecting back on my days in college of, of reading a lot of fiction from, uh, gay fiction from the 50s and 60s i'm very delighted in seeing martha plimpton play a big old diesel dyke in this it's um it's it's from what i can surmise it's pretty right on and it's done with love too along with martha plimpton uh steven dorff who plays candy darling from what and i've watched uh, i watched the documentary called beautiful darling on Candy Darling, and there's a ton of footage of her, and it was really awesome to see. Man, um, I know that a lot of people, like especially nowadays in 2019, you could say have a trans actress, you know, play this role. We're in '96, and it wasn't always an option. And but I do think that Stephen Dorff plays this role so well, and his performance is very earnest. And to me, it looks like. Stephen Dorff put a lot of research into this part and it's not done in any type of, I don't know. He didn't, he didn't seem to half-ass this one. He really seemed to follow through with it. And I don't know, I'd be pretty proud if I were Candy Darling watching this performance. I think if I were Candy Darling, I would think that I was more beautiful, but 
that's about it. A lot of this is based on um, the diaries of Candy Darling. And I, although I have not read that, I, I know a good chunk of this movie is based off of Candy Darling's diaries and musings about everything. And there is a scene where um, it's kind of where it's like ramping up right before Valerie Solana shoots Warhol in mm-hmm. the film. She has like this blowout and hits Candy Darling in the hotel room. And I remember there was like a discussion with Mary Heron saying she, you know, that wasn't something that happened, but she believes that Valerie Solanus would have been capable of like doing violence, to, you know, because she would get aggressive and she would kind of. And this mm-hmm. was around the time too where her mental illness was probably getting the best of her. Unhinged, yeah. And speaking of that scene, it was uh, Jeremiah Newton who's the uh, real-life person who who was friends with Candy Darling, who was kind of Candy Darling's quote-unquote son, her biggest fan. He produced the Beautiful Darling documentary. He put out the Candy Darling diaries that this movie took a lot from and took a lot of dialogue from um, and, you know, is, is portrayed in the film um, by a, a guy named Danny Morgenstern, who I have no idea what Jeremiah Newton was like. But from what the little video uh, there is out there of Candy Darling and, and Jeremiah Newton, um, it seemed to it seemed to hit on it pretty well. And he and he clearly seems he to be He needed to be a little bit more of a fanboy actually. But in the in the film I shot Andy Warhol, he clearly seems to be a very big fan of Valerie's work. Like he's he seems very positive about the play when he's you know, he calls her up and wants to play a part in it. And when she's starting to tell him about her idea of the scum manifesto, you know, he's not, he's not disgusted by it. You know, he's like sort of like taking her very serious and like asking her about it and is inquisitive. And it's very much seems to be a fan of hers, you know, and like wanting to help her produce. And also um, you told me is factual that got in the movie, he gets her, uh, onto the talk show where the talk show host is kind of like ra- really just kind of doing this sort of like um, Ugh, exploitive named- like thing for an audience. But uh, a guy named Alan Burke, the Alan Burke show that really did happen. The the scene in the movie and Jeremiah was there and as was Candy Darling, I believe in the audience, even though that's not shown in the movie. It's a terrible, awful Humi- it, like I don't even want to say humiliating. It's humiliating for that guy. It's awful. And I, I don't know of a recording of it, if that exists anywhere. But yeah, that scene pretty much was taken straight from Jeremiah Newton. And I, I think a lot of this film, uh, you know, he was a, it was a primary source for this film. Uh, there, yeah, a lot of research done on this. And it feels like a lot of care put into casting. And and I think the, you know, blending of fact and kind of massaging, you know, that and and, you know, creating fiction, creating the movie around this actual story yeah. um, was done so well. And it's um yeah, it's 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 fun to watch as if you want to watch it as a biopic, you totally can, because pretty much all of it happened. It just might be little things are altered for the purposes of movie making. And I think that, you know, with and, you know, maybe we can close on this before we get to our picks of the week, but like I think that when you do a biopic or like 
a movie of a, a historical event that really has affected people in a negative way, it is necessary to take that kind of care and that this movie does do that because there's a lot of people really loved Andy Warhol and um, I'm, sh- I'm certain that a lot of people really, you know, villainized Valerie Solanas. I mean, Andy Warhol did almost die yeah. and, yeah. you know, and she really didn't have uh, a very, you know, logical or rational explanation as to why she was going to murder Andy Warhol. And so I can see how there would be a lot of people that were like, you know what, this isn't a person that should, a movie should be centered around. If anything, you know, you should be villainizing this person in the film instead of humanizing them. And so I think it was a very bold choice, but at the same time, with every bad side of a person, you know, someone can see the good in somebody, you know, and so this is, uh, I think this is a movie that walks that fine line where it's like it's taking care uh, not to be exploitive and not exploit this moment in history where uh, a tragedy happened, but also showing another side of it, a more humane side. And I don't know. I, I think that they the it was done really tastefully and really well. And I'm, I'm sure this movie still offended a lot of people that were lovers of Warhol and like don't didn't want to see a more um, just her name sympathetic anywhere. side you yeah. know of, of her character but you know I, I don't I don't feel like personally I just don't I don't think it's that sympathetic towards her it feels so it feels very much like like a journalist made a movie um, taking fact and making a story out of it and yes you could you could be annoyed at the fact that Valerie Solanas's name was even in a movie about Andy Warhol, but I mean, it was something that happened. There is a story there and I I could see why a movie would be made. I mean, we don't really go into the aftermath of all of this. And a lot of people said that Andy Warhol really never recovered after the shooting and that his maybe work didn't necessarily suffer, but like emotionally he didn't really recover from it. Well, and I think that the the big difference here, and I think, you know, maybe I'm going out on the ledge here, but I think that the big difference would be if Andy Warhol did in fact die at the hands of Valerie Solanas, I don't know that this movie would be made. And I think that no matter how much mm, you uh, made her sympathetic, I don't know that you could, in, in, the, in the same way of like, if John Lennon was just wounded and not killed by Mark Chapman, you know, would people feel the same? Like he, you know, there's been multiple movies made about him, but when you watch those movies, you're just like, uh, it's disgusting. You know, you don't want to watch it. And you're like, I don't want any, you know, sympathy for him. I wonder if the same would be for war for her character. If Warhol did in fact die, like she just murdered him. Wow. I'm sure her name would be much more known than it is. Sure. She, she yeah. would have actually murdered him. Uh, yeah, I I could I could see that this would be a much dicier film to do that considering what you know her work you know considering what she came from and and her work before that because she was so you know her her life like she was after she shot Warhol she was institutionalized that's where she was diagnosed yeah. as paranoid schizophrenic and you know with all of these things we look back at someone's life and we find out that 
you know, she was molested by a relative and we find out all of these sexual abuse and, and trauma stories and all of these things start falling into place. And you also have someone that is incredible. I mean, no matter what you think of the woman, she was incredibly intelligent. You can read her writings and see that even though you might be completely shocked by it. We did start to kind of learn who she was after after she was apprehended. She also turned herself into police. And after she was eventually released from jail, wasn't in jail that long, like she didn't live the best life and died poor and alone. And I yeah, don't necessarily think that, uh, like you were saying, if if this would have gone down a different way, if it could have been made into a movie but the way that both of those people ended their lives in reality I'm glad that this movie exists because I feel like both of them one was um you know sick and was never actually never got the help that she needed or or refused it whatever it was and Andy Warhol suffered because of what she what she had done to him so it's like kind of a you know it is a really sad ending to to their story but I do appreciate that at least this part um of their interaction and this moment in history is is documented so well in um in this dramatization of what happened yeah well i think that's a good place to stop there um you know we'll come back for some final thoughts on i shot andy warhol but we should move on to our picks of the week um again mine was sydney lemay's running on empty connected to uh the warhol film via martha plumpton and yours was connected via Lily Taylor. Yes. With a movie that also starred River Phoenix, and that's Dogfight. Yeah. What what can you tell us about Dogfight? I think we've made it pretty clear that we really appreciate Lily Taylor in this episode, um, and River Phoenix for that matter. So, you know, it only makes sense if they're in a movie together that's totally underseen and really worth the watch. It's time to talk about it. Dogfight. The title doesn't necessarily conjure up the greatest idea. Taking place in 1963, so another period piece, um, this is in the middle of Vietnam, right before Kennedy was murdered. Um, it it doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to be a period piece, but probably not as well as like Andy Warhol does it. Um, there is a lot of like music that's used to set the scene, you know, of the early 60s, but it's more of like a snapshot of a pre-war life in San Francisco at the time. And I appreciate the setup before we realize what dogfight means. And the setup being a bus full of Marines getting shipped off to Vietnam, but they have one more night stateside before they ship out. And what is easily one of the cruelest things I can think of, each man lays down $50 to enter a competition. Who can score the ugliest date in one night? Then they all meet at a rented out bar and these women are judged. Whoever has the ugliest dates, well, you know, you get the picture. Lily Taylor plays Rose, the girl that's picked up by River Phoenix's Eddie Birdlace. She mainly goes with him because of this, like, false, quiet, emo boy act that he puts on. Rose is a sweet, quiet soul who loves music and works at her family diner. She's not expecting to be the butt of this massive joke from a seemingly nice 19-year-old kid. 
Needless to say, she does figure out the whole sham of it all and very, very directly confronts Birdlace for not only hurting her, but really puts he and all of his marine buddies in their place for being such scumbags to all of the women that they've picked up and brought there. Now, one might wonder, how does this movie go on after that, other than, you know, Rose questioning the motivations of all men for the rest of her life? But remember this time period. If Birdlace goes out of his way to earnestly apologize to her, chase after her, stalk her down to her house, I mean, it's creepy to think about it nowadays, but in 1963, it makes a little bit more sense. I could see how she might give the guy another chance. This guy ships out the next morning. He's a he's a military guy. She knows this. It's not like it's a long-term thing. And it's not completely out of guilt that Birdlace goes after Rose. And what transpires is this unlikely duo, like, assuming a little bit of each other, thus expanding their horizons, knowing that they only have this one night. He proves he's not totally a macho marine jerk, and Rose gets to break out of her everyday life for one night. We understand their differences almost immediately. I don't know if it's because of a, you know, chance one night encounter that they continue hanging out. And from the beginning, they're open to each other's opinions and thoughts. Although Birdlace like sets up Rose for the cruelest of contests, he's never dominant or attempting to control her, something that I think would be very likely during this time. So that's kind of like different and kind of lets us know that he's maybe, we hope, a different kind of guy for the early 60s. The fight that happens um, kind of midway through the movie over their fundamental differences between Rose believing problems can be solved peacefully versus Birdlace thinking war is the answer, this really breaks any tension between them. Two vastly different people being open to each other and listening to each other, Birdlace knowing that this could be his last, you know, date. He could go on for quite some time, if ever again. And Rose trying to open this guy's eyes to a more understanding side of humanity. The longer their one night only adventure goes on, the more the story really does creep up on you. And it's like so hard to not be enchanted by it. Spliced in between Rose and Birdlace's all-nighter is what the close-knit, immediate gratification having marine buddies and what they've been doing this whole time. I can't help but think that this is very intentional by the director like to show that Birdlace is different from those other guys and, and how Rose is truly a gem of a person. Obviously, this is a somewhat unconventional love story. Rose shows Birdlace that he doesn't have to totally conform to a marine mentality, to this stupid male bonding dogfight kind of crap. And in truth, it becomes obvious early on that Rose likes Birdlace, but he's so used to this bro-like conformity. And in a scene near like the last few minutes of the movie, Birdlace's friend, Marine Buddy, breaks down life as just a series of people believing other people's bullshit while serving out your own, that life is just a bunch of bullshit. And telling a 19-year-old kid this, you pretty much assume he's going to adhere to this identity of someone that's, you know, his commanding officer, that he's just going to assume that. That makes sense. But in the closing moments of the film, a couple years later, we understand that Birdlace, he might have been impressionable before, but the truth of his being is why he returns to San Francisco. During his career, River Phoenix was known to play the rebel outsider type. And in some ways, he reprises this idea a little bit in Dogfight, but be ready to see a 
broed out military guy, but like nearly all of Phoenix's roles, it's the heart of this character that's what's most important. And Lily Taylor's believability as Rose couldn't be more perfect. Her truth and wholehearted ability to show the strength in her character. I mean, Lily Taylor, she's just one of the greatest actresses of our time. She's she's awesome. I love her. It could be easy to portray Rose as someone who isn't a woman with a strong emotional center, but the way that she plays Rose as an equal to Phoenix is truly magical to watch. Of course, Rose and Birdlace, uh, their story must come to an end when the sun rises. We see a snippet of what Birdlace experiences in Vietnam, but the story does come full circle. I'm not going to ruin the kind of bittersweet ending that happens, and it does conclude with some open-endedness, but for this story, the open-endedness really feels all too appropriate. So you said you saw this um, maybe when it came out? I saw it on television, like right around the time they started playing on television. So I don't remember it too well. This is one I really like to revisit. I remember it, you know, liking it, but I don't recall too much about it. Man, it it really, it it sucks. Like the whole dogfight idea really does suck. But um, the story that comes out of it is, um, it is very sweet, even though you think it's, how, how could that ever be sweet? It is. Anyway. I really want to hear about your pick of the week, please. All right. Well, my pick of the week was Running on Empty, a movie by Sidney LeMay, who really, you know, some consider to be one of the best filmmakers of the 70s and 80s. He did uh, 12 Angry Men, Serpico, very character-driven movies uh, where the where the characters are going through some sort of change in their life, uh, some sort of moment like... Um, he kind of always zeroes in on like the most exciting moment of, of a character's life, but also has the ability to not have the, that moment, um, take away from the film. It's always, he's always done these like very intricate character studies and running on empty is no different. Uh, the basic plot of the movie is about, uh, an American family who have two kids, uh, the, Husband and wife, uh, when they were younger, they, uh, in protest of the Vietnam War, they caught a a weapons lab on fire, a military weapons lab on fire. Uh, In doing so, though, it accidentally blinded a janitor that was working. So they've been on the run from the FBI. But during this time, while they've been on the run, their oldest son, played by River Phoenix, is now about 16 years old. Uh, seven, 16 or 17, and his younger brother is only about eight. But we see in the beginning of the movie that the kids are well trained on how to skip town if the FBI is on their tail. And they you can see that they've been on the run for quite some time. They're very well versed on, you know, when they go to a new town, their dad drills them on changing their name to make sure that they're pretty vague. They don't show up for picture day. All these things are, are sort of like set up in the beginning of the movie. Uh, where the drama of the movie really hits, and this is a drama. This is what I would consider to be a straight-up drama. If you're not looking for a slow-moving uh, character study. This movie might bore you a little bit, but if you give it if you give it a chance, I think you'll really find 
um, some great performances here, namely from River Phoenix. The parents are played perfectly by Christine Lati and Judd Hirsch. And uh, Martha Plimpton plays a friend, eventual love interest to the River Phoenix character. But where the movie really opens up is when they settle on a new town because they're still on the run, uh, River Phoenix has a real talent at playing the piano. And he goes to the school and immediately a music teacher recognizes River Phoenix talent at piano and convinces him that he should really, you know, he has a shot to get grants and go to Juilliard. And the piano teacher's daughter, who eventually falls in love with River Phoenix, is played by Martha Plumpton. And the movie does slow down for like this sort of like love interest take that you'd see in many films, but it feels very honest. Uh, The conversations that they have, these teenage conversations that they have feel very real and very honest. And you can kind and this is where River Phoenix really shines because you can see a character who starts uh, every, every decision he makes, every fiber in his being is to protect his parents. And like, you know, he's followed their code, but as he's realizing, as every teenager does, I feel, coming into her own and trying to fight to be their own person, and now he's having outside people, outside of his family, say, hey, you know, you've got a talent in this, you're an interesting person. Um, he's faced with the decision of, should I, you know, walk away from my family? Um, and in turn, his family starts realizing that maybe they need to walk away from him as well, that they're holding him back, you know, that they know that this is a life that they have to continue to lead. They're stuck in this pattern, you know, either they turn themselves in and their family falls apart or they keep running from the FBI, which is something that they're, they've been accustomed to doing and they're really good at it. Ultimately, they, they make a decision. I'm not going to spoil that decision. I don't want to, uh, give you know give away the little bit of suspense that the movie musters up toward the toward the end but it is a very slow drama uh, great performances by the entire cast uh, i can't recommend it enough and uh you know sydney lemay um if you go if you're one of those kind of people that that loves to uh kind of say like hey i'm gonna find the filmography of a director and just kind of start like watching their movies you know that's a director you really can't go wrong with if you want to go down that path because he has uh just you know a dozen great films that you can sit down and watch man that's awesome i don't know why i haven't seen this because i i know all of these actors like so well and yeah love martha plimpton and River Phoenix and Christine Lottie. I think, yeah. I think again, it's just one of those movies that just, it was like, a, it, you know, it just didn't have very much of a, especially for like 88, 89, this would have been, you know, I mean, it, it kind of played more like a TV movie. I just don't think that there mm-hmm. was enough, there wasn't a good tagline for it. It's like a family drama in 1988, 89 wasn't, sure. wasn't very exciting, I think for, and it just kind of got buried, you know, and. I think too, like River Phoenix, it's kind of funny because this is a performance of his that kind of gets overshadowed from a lot of the other more popular movies he did, but this was the movie that he was nominated for uh, the Academy Award. Really? Man, that kid. But yeah, Running on Empty, check it out. It's our picks of the week, uh, Running on Empty and Dogfight. You know, Running on Empty is not the easiest movie in the world to find. I found a DVD copy at uh, the local uh, V-Stock here for about a used copy for about $6, which I didn't think was very bad. I don't yeah. think it's one that's ever made its way to Blu-ray. Um, 
but you said dogfight you can I f- find uh, yeah i found dogfight on the movie app voodoo so yeah check those out um those are our picks of the week uh, highly recommend those here's your murray moment chicks dig me because i rarely wear underwear and when i do it's usually something unusual i think i need a root canal i'm sure i need a long slow root canal you're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again oh what does that old queen know she didn't even chill okay this is so scrumptious is this hand shot the flowing robes the grace all striking For this Murray moment, if you can, try to picture yourself as if you were hip with the in crowd, a real snooty hobnobber, a person who knows all the hottest parties in town, the hippest, the most of the moment New York artist, someone that was doing LSD with all the Warhol groupies in the factory. Just, if you can, just take a moment <laughs> and picture yourself in March of 1975. New York's hottest nightclub for all the hippest of the hottest ghouls in town. One that was open for one night only. A hollowed out, closed off subway station at 57th Street where Andy Warhol paid to have an after party for the over the top rock opera Tommy, if you're familiar with that. Apparently, this dinner slash dance party after party had everything. Every New York elitist A-lister was there, even some asking to get mugged for entertainment while having dinner in this bizarre subway setting. Elton John pretending not to be gay with Anne Margaret. Angela Lansbury uh, complaining about stepping in horse manure at the entrance. Yes, all of these things actually did happen. And who knows what other things were going on, too. This is just the tip of the metaphorical pop art iceberg. At the same time, this number one place to be Warhol party, um, some restaurant cabaret let their trash out, and the Saturday Night Live gang and friends of this ragtag group at the time descended upon Warhol's party, uninvited. Bill Murray and his brother Brian, Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Harold Ramis, Joe Flaherty, they all had snuck in the back because there was no way any of these jokers were getting in the front door. They all snuck in, and as soon as they're Long, frizzy-haired, dorky faces entered the party. Everyone knew that they were the ones that did not belong at all. But they chummed it up with the catering boys, charmed their way in, hobnobbed with all the best of them. And remember, these guys were improv masters at this time and kind of ready for any occasion. They also weren't shy about um, eating all the leftover french fries uh, that they could come across that, you know, were actually doled out to invited party guests. And then, towards the back door of the subway... Bill Murray ends up only a few feet away from Andy Warhol. Even a 1975 Billy isn't going to be intimidated by the world's most well-known contemporary artist at the time. That's something you gotta admire. I love the soup can, Billy says to Warhol, referencing one of Andy's most well-known paintings. And evidently, the look that Andy gave him was like if a priest had walked into an orgy. Shocked at this no-name that had just spoken to him, maybe appalled at his comment, who knows, but Warhol was not amused. At the time, it was said that this was the biggest party to have ever happened in New York, and Bill Murray 
and all these Saturday Night Live crew totally crashed it. And years later, 1981, Warhol actually would photograph Billy for his celebrity portrait series. And last I looked, that original print was going for like around $13,000. So I guess by 1981, six years after this legendary party, Billy was a huge star from SNL to movies. I guess Warhol figured he was, um, you know, a person worth being documented versus being scoffed at. I can totally hear Bill Murray saying that line, too, about the soup can. I love your soup can. (laughs) Where it's like you don't know if he's being, like, facetious or actually being serious. (laughs) And just, like, nonchalantly, just like, yep, that's all I got to say about that. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Yeah, of course. Was there uh, anything else that we wanted to hit on um, with I Shot Andy Warhol before we close things out yeah kind of like a real quick shout out to donovan leach who has a supporting role in this movie and i don't know what it is about this guy i think it's just knowing him from the blob and cutting class and he was uh my brother was an extra in a a mini series movie called the 60s that he was in i've always been kind of aware of donovan leach and he always adds a lot to to movies and he has an especially right on performance in this one just very um very real for the time period and and i shot andy warhol and also we could talk about that crazy velvet underground story that you told me too about how um john cale did the score for i shot andy warhol and the velvet underground did not want him to be associated with the movie or they didn't want to be associated yeah they were also mad that he decided to you know take part in it because they they are not Valerie Solana's fans. Obviously. Um, I don't think that anybody looked at the script beforehand, but it was just the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I can understand that, but I, I don't think it's, this movie really doesn't um, glorify her. I don't think in any way. And for you uh, music nerds out there, the band that plays at the factory is portrayed by Yola Tango. <laughs> and quite a great soundtrack actually for this yeah. entire film. Yeah. The soundtrack is awesome. You know, Okay, yeah, I'm going to ask you, why, Justin, do you think that Valerie Solanas tried to kill Andy Warhol? It's a tough one because from the information, you know, that I've read and from the movie, for starters, it's it's very clear that there was never really, she never really gave like an, an a real explanation as to why she tried to kill Andy Warhol. And the most explanation that she gives in the movie is just read my manifesto. Um, well, I did read that manifesto. And, you know, you could easily say that Valerie Solanas was like going to start her revolution by being the first person to, you know, start this revolution by killing off a male and by picking, you know, a male who was like famous that people would have heard of in hopes that other women would read her manifesto. But the way that this, the way that things took place um, I really don't think that's the case. I mean, to me, it seems more of like someone who uh, had finally, their mental illness had finally taken the best of them. Uh, she wasn't getting the psychiatric help that she needed and was getting very confused and very paranoid and kind of like got sucked into her own black hole. And to me, like, it just seems more of a case of like, she was sort of like at, at the worst of her paranoia and believing that Andy Warhol and her publisher were kind of in cahoots because it seemed very, number one, unplanned. And secondly, it seemed like, you know, if she ever had an opportunity 
to kind of like get people to read her literature. She could have done like number of interviews and like spent the rest of her life like having this be her legacy, but she really didn't. She really didn't really seek out uh, that kind of fame and fortune when she could have, which kind of leads me to put leads me to believe that, you know, at that point, like her illness had kind of like taken over her life. And so I guess to me, it feels more of a sort of like a sad tale of, of someone who uh, didn't get the guidance and help that they needed and, and their illness got the best of them. I would completely agree. I don't think that it had anything really to do with her manifesto. I think she wanted people to read it, obviously, but the actual shooting or attempted murder of Andy Warhol seemed to stem out of the paranoia of her thinking that he stole her her play that I still want to read. Anne was eventually performed um, in 2000 in San Francisco. Up Your Ass actually did see the stage. Yeah, and the, uh, and the script in the movie, you know, she she says she's only has two copies of it, one of which she gave to Andy Warhol. That play was actually recovered like something like, you know, twenty some odd year later. Uh, uh, a lighting technician or cinematographer for Warhol's films found it in like a he was like clearing out a bunch of stuff and found it like shoved between two lights in like a a box that held a bunch of lighting gear. God, can you, I mean, what, what, what do you think would be different had she just gotten that friggin' script back? Yeah, I don't know. Anything? Because, yeah, I, I don't mean, know. Yeah, I don't know. But if who knows? Hand it to her, you know, and, or, but, you know, who knows? It, it's, it's almost kind of like at that point. It was kind of like she used it as an excuse. Yeah. Is, this is a very sad tale. You know, it's like, it's a very intriguing and interesting movie, um, but ultimately a very sad tale. But, um, a movie that I think, you know, should be watched and not forgotten and, and hopefully more people will see this movie and learn more about uh, Valerie's work. This movie is such uh, worth a worth a revisit and I think you can't help but want to explore uh, Valerie Solanas and hell, even Andy, Andy Warhol if you don't know that much about him. Um, this movie can really be a jumping off point for a lot. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Well, uh, that's it for I Shot Andy Warhol. We'll wrap things up here. If you've been following us, uh, thank you so much. If you're new to listening to our podcast and you want to uh, find out more information, uh, you can always find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Don't Push Pause Podcast. Uh, We have all of our old episodes archived on our website at Don'tPushPausePodcast.com. And we also have a uh, merchandise that you can purchase. Anything uh, that gets bought on our website, um, the money goes into helping us uh, produce a better and more professional podcast for our listeners. Also, if anyone would like to contact us directly, you can always reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. And Lindsay, uh, do you want to uh, let everybody know what our, our special uh, thing we got worked up for our next episode for Valentine's Day is? Yeah. Um, we've been waiting so long to talk about Bridget Jones's diary and like, I, I can't, no, just kidding. Our Valentine's Day episode is, uh, 1990s misery. I like that we're keeping it hard on the nineties for these last uh, couple episodes here. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm so excited to go back and watch this because it's, um, it's one of those I've, I've seen numerous times, but I don't actually remember the last time I've watched it all the way through. Um, so I'm stoked 
uh, it's, it's been a little while for me yeah. too and and it's uh again i love kind of like going into these uh cold weather movies this is the perfect one for that and we love our stephen king here yeah um so and rob reiner and rob reiner right so well that's coming up next our valentine's day episode with misery <laughs> until perfect. next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reber thanks so much for listening thank you Thank you.